Okay, we are coming close to our study of the life or the ministry, basically, of Elijah the prophet. You may be sitting here today wondering, why in the world did Keith pick this particular prophet? Well, Elijah stands in importance in regard to the prophets in, in some aspects in, in a place where none of the rest of the prophets do. There's some reasons for us to understand and come to the conclusion that Elijah was the greatest of all prophets other than Jesus, of course. Now, why can I say that? Well, I can say it for a number of reasons. Uh, one of those is this, is if you know how the Old Testament ends, it ends with a name. And whose name in it? It's the name of Elijah, the promise of Elijah to come again. Who Jesus is acknowledged to be John the Baptist. But we also remember this as we're thinking about how this comes into the New Testament, and that is that when Jesus took John and Peter uh, and James up on the Mount of Transfiguration, that lo and behold, there were two people who appeared there to him. One was Moses and one was Elijah. So let me just tell you something, guys. Elijah was really important in the Old Testament. Elijah is really important in the New Testament, too, where we are. Because there's actually ground in the book of Revelation to suggest possibly that God's not even through with Elijah yet. We are in chapter 2 of 2 Kings. Be picking up with verse 5. And just remember, as we opened last week, that, uh, that Elijah and Elisha, his protege, they embarked on this one-day sojourn that will take them from a place called Gilgal to Bethel and from Bethel to Jericho and Jericho to the Jordan River, which we estimated to be somewhere around 25 miles. And from the text, uh, some of the things that we're going to read today, it's pretty clear that they walked the whole way. It's not that God picked them up and carried them by his spirit or, you, you know, uh, someone picked them up and carried them in a wagon or anything like that. We have every reason to believe they walked the whole way. So we need to understand that they were on a mission, and the mission was really important. I mean, how, how important would a mission have to be for you to embark on a walk that was 25 miles long? Well, some of us say, well, they did it all the time, so they were used to it. It wasn't any big deal to them. But let me tell you something. You get a place like Uganda where they do this kind of walking all the time, it's not unusual to see a Nissan pickup truck with 30 people hanging off of it. The reason, even though they do it, they would much rather not have to. As we read last week, uh, as, as they left Gilgal and they went on to Bethel, they came to Bethel, we're told that sons of the prophets, and we understand that these probably were disciples of Elijah himself, that, that he established a school of training uh, in Bethel, which, by the way, means house of God. And we understand that Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom, had, uh, had desecrated that sacred place by, by putting up a golden calf uh, in that same area. Uh, but then they, then they had left there, and that's kind of where we left them, and they're moving on to, uh, to Jericho, as we're going to read in just a few minutes. But just remember this, that, that Elijah, or Eli, yeah, Elijah had, had encouraged Elisha to stay behind. 
Every time they stop, before they get ready to go again, he encourages him to do that. But every time, Elisha shows complete and absolute determination by swearing an oath before the living God that by no means will he remain behind. We also know this, that somehow... That, that what is going to happen on this particular day, and that is Elijah is going to be carried up into heaven. Somehow Elisha knows that. Somehow the son, these sons of the prophets know it too, whether they were told by Elijah or God revealed it to them some other mysterious kind of way. We don't know, but we do know that they were privy to what was going on. And we can understand why he would want to make this circuit because he knows this, Elijah knows this is his last day. And you can understand why Elisha does not want to leave him because he knows it's Elijah's last day. And you can understand why the sons of the prophets want to come out and spend time with him because they know it's his last day. And Elijah wants to spend time with them. And that's probably one of the main reasons he makes this long trek. In a sense, it was his way of saying goodbye to people who were very dear to him, people he had invested a lot into their lives. So verse 5, well, let's just let's do verse 4. And Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets who were in Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he answered, Yes, I know. Be still. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Now fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle and folded it together and struck the waters, and they were divided here and there, so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. I'm thinking that's probably where we're going to get today. Uh, so we will be moving on from that next week. So let's go to verse 5 here. Uh, and the sons of the prophets who were in Jericho went up to Elisha and said to him, Do you know this day the Lord is taking your master from over your head? Is really more direct translation. And he replied, Indeed I know, do not speak of it which we said last week probably means something along the lines of don't be anxious. Things will be okay. Now, what do you know about Jericho? Kids, you guys ever heard of Jericho? I would imagine. I would imagine. And what do you know about Jericho? Yeah, it was Joshua. And what happened to the city? It came tumbling down, right? That was in the days that was the first city that Israel conquered in the Promised Land once they crossed over the Jordan River, right? Uh, It's also a place that Jesus visited. It's where Zacchaeus lived. He also, uh, we're told, healed a, a blind man there. Let's talk a little bit about Jericho. Again, like we said, it was the, it was the first city to fall to Israel, you know, in the conquest, conquest of the land of Canaan. And it, and it took place in an unusual way. I mean, there's no other story about the conquest of Jerusalem or any of the other cities 
that, that Israel took where the same kind of thing took place, where the only thing the army did was they marched around the city, and they did that every day for so many days, and then finally they did it again and blew the trumpets, and, and God caused the walls to just crumble down. You think that was important? There was an important message underlying that as, as Israel was moving in as this conquering army. Maybe it would be stuff like this. You need to understand something, Israel, as, as I, the Lord your God, I go before you. The only thing you need to do is follow me. That this nation cannot stand against me, cannot stand against you, because it cannot stand against me. Marching orders. Joshua said this in regard to Jericho after its destruction. Cursed be the, before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city Jericho with the loss of his firstborn shall he lay its foundations in the loss of his youngest son. He shall set its gates, pronouncing a curse on anyone who attempts to rebuild the city of Jericho once again. It was rebuilt in the days of Ahab. Does Ahab sound familiar? The gates were set. We read this from 1 Kings. Hiel, the Bethlehemite, built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Sagud, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Do you understand that when, when this is going on with Elijah, this is something that has just recently taken place? And just remember how Jeroboam had desecrated Bethel. There's a sense in which the same thing can be said for Jericho, that there was a curse of God put upon that place. Can you imagine someone willing to do... You, you, you would listen to this and you wonder if that father knew that this had been said. Who knows? Maybe he was completely oblivious to it, but he might have thought something when his first son died. Just a measure, my friends, of, of where Israel was in this day. How fallen so many were. How, how far from God their hearts had drawn and their culture was, was, was likened to Sodom and Gomorrah over and over again. The interesting thing is this, is Elijah established apparently two schools of discipleship, at least one in Bethel, the other in Jericho, hotbeds of the pagan culture. I bring this to your attention so you'll understand that they, you know, we're talk, not talk, talking about remote places. 
Remember, in the beginning of his ministry, Elijah wasn't remote. He went to the Cherith. He was there by himself for who knows how long. And then he went to Zarephath, outside the land of Israel, and, and, and all that for who knows how long. But ever since he came back into the picture, he's been right in the picture, in the middle of the picture. And remember, his life was threatened. And his life is still continuing to be threatened, I would imagine. But he continues not only to be there, to be present there, but he continues to be like a spearhead... Driving the true gospel, if you want to call it that, in the midst of pagan idolatry. Not a very popular person. Not popular at all with most people. And just remember this, as he's leaving, he's not, he's not, he's not just exiting and that's just the end of it. He's been teaching, he's been preaching, he's been training, he's been preparing these people, these men, to step in when he steps out. Elisha being the primary one, but these other sons of the prophets, the same thing. Why in the world did Jesus spend three years with those apostles? Disciples. Pretty obvious to us. It was years for training. And training for that would go on beyond the time when Jesus left. Can you imagine being one of them? You know, we talked about this where, you know, we, we talk about passing of the mantle, how that whole common phrase that people use in culture even today comes right here from the Bible. Most people would know that, but that's where it came from. And we understand there's always, when there's leadership that is moving out, there has to be other leadership who comes in. And if that doesn't happen, then whatever's going on, if you're any kind of a human institution, whether you're talking about a church or you're talking about this or that or the other, a business, if no one steps into the leadership place, then the whole thing falls apart, right? It doesn't make it from one generation to the next generation. But again, not in obscure places. He was driving things right to the heart of the matter. Can you imagine what courage it would take to do something like this? We had our stay of the church meeting this morning. And we have all kinds of reasons to be encouraged, really. And we are. I didn't talk about this, but I really, I've talked with the elders about this and the deacons about this. But obviously, I'm getting older. <laughs> my, my 64th birthday is tomorrow, so I just want you to know. <laughs> uh, but the thing I become more and more concerned about this is mo- the thing that is most on my mind and most on my heart. 
in most recent days, in most recent years, is the well-being of Springs Presbyterian Church whenever the time comes. With willful intention, we're working toward that. Who's to say when it'll be? I can't. Could be sooner, could be later. Who knows? Uh, but we know this. We know that if, 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 if Springs is going to live into the next generation, there has to be that transition, right? It has to take place. The better we go about doing it, the better off it's going to look and the better off, better off the church is going to be in the end. Let me just tell you a story. I love this story. There's a guy that I know. He was in a church, and uh, he came into church. It was very traditional, and he was a lot more contemporary, and, and I really believe this. Over the years, he managed basically to split the church in half because he was trying to make a church be something it wasn't and, you know, some things like that. But he learned a lot from that. But he wind, wound up going and in, 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 in planning another church. Actually, he wasn't, he wasn't the church planner, but he came in after the person who planted it as the senior pastor. And he was there for a number of years. He's a great guy. I love him to death. I think he learned a ton from you know, what took place in, in, in that other deal. But what happened was this. As he started getting older... There was a young man there by the name of Matt Ryan. He's the one I told you that that sends out on Facebook every single Sunday morning, I love Sundays. Matt became his assistant pastor for a time. But as Matt developed, became more mature and, and all of that, Mike stepped down to assistant pastor, and Matt became the senior pastor. Beautiful. I don't know how you can go through that transition any better than something like that. So it's doable. Doable. Now, Elisha said to him, stay here for now. The Lord has sent me to, jo- to the Jordan. And he said, as the Lord lives and your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. The third time that, that Elisha insisted on, on, on going, and the third time he sworn an oath that he was not going to, to remain behind. You know, you wonder what's going on with Elijah at this point. We, sometimes we make these people into superheroes, and, and for, we forget that they really are very much like we are. And let me ask you, what do you think would be going through your mind if, if you knew that this was the day that you were going to, he's not going to die, but he's going to leave earth, he's going to depart? What do you think your biggest concern would be? I mean, he's looking forward to going to heaven, I would imagine, probably more than anything else. Wouldn't you love to be able to get out of this 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 mess. <laughs> It'd be nice if you didn't have to die to make that happen, though, right? But he's leaving. But he's leaving behind people he cares about, and he's leaving them in the mess. There's a sense that maybe what Elijah is doing here, he's trying to make it as easy on Elisha as he can. Hmm. 
Notice he doesn't give up three times. He encourages him to stay behind. But notice this, that Elisha sticks to him like glue. He knows what's going to happen. He doesn't know the details. He doesn't know about the chariot of fire that's going to come down. The only thing he knows is God's going to take him away. That's all he knows. But he wants to be there for a lot of reasons. I would imagine one of them is just to see it with his own eyes. I mean, how would you? I mean, you that, then you would know definitively that it actually happened, right? How important are witnesses in the Bible? How important is it when it comes to criminal cases and things like that? How important are witnesses to those kinds of things? How important are witnesses to establishing historical facts? Fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood at a distance facing the two of them as they stopped at the Jordan. So here they are, the two prophets had finally arrived at the Jordan River that's of two or three miles east of, of Jericho, the last little leg of their 25-mile walk. And 50 of the sons of the prophets, or disciples of Elijah, have followed after them. Again, they've been, it's been revealed to them what's going to happen with Elijah, and I would imagine they want to see it. The interesting thing is they don't come up close and personal. They stay at a distance. And it's partly maybe this, that they understood, that maybe they heard what Elijah said to Elijah about staying behind, and maybe they took that as he didn't really want anybody to be with him. But could it also be this, that in some sense they had this idea that something magnificent demonstrated by the greatness of the power of God was going to take place, and maybe they stood at a distance to be in a safe zone? Because they were either there or they heard about, uh, you know, Elijah calling fire down from heaven more than once, right? Who knows? The day is coming. It's got to be getting very late in the day. They've made this journey. They've spoken with people in the places they've gone and... We don't know how long they were there, but, but all the walking consumed a good bit of the day. So, so we have to understand that the end of the day is coming now. So they're anticipating. They know it's got to be sometime soon. The day's almost over. Now, we know there's a regular mechanism for people leaving earth, right? We understand the Bible describes us as being a dichotomy, dichotomous persons. And basically means this, that there's two parts to us. One we recognize and acknowledge is the, the material part, or the Bible often calls it our flesh. The other is the immaterial part, which the Bible calls our spirit or our soul, right? And we understand this. And, and people have understood this in, you know, early on in the Bible. And that is at the time of death that our body dies physically. And where does it go? It goes back to the dust it came from, right? 
And we understand this. The Bible's really clear on this. Jesus is really clear on this, and that is the spirits of people who are believers. They go to heaven to be with Jesus, and they're waiting there for the time of his second coming. And when he comes, their spirits are going to come with him, and their bodies are going to be resurrected from the dust. But we also know this, that at death, the souls of unbelievers go to hell. Really? They're going to watch something. They're going to see something that has, had never taken place except one other possibility. Think about all the people that lived in the history of the world. Think about all the people that, that have lived in Israel and were part of this picture, even you know, in Old Testament times and all the way down through that. As far as the Bible goes, only two people in all of the Bible are recorded as not dying before they departed earth. One is Elijah, the other is Enoch, who was a man who was in the seventh generation after Adam, which was thousands of years before Elijah. The only thing the Bible tells us about Enoch is he walked with God and he was not. For the Lord took him. He just disappeared. God took him. Hebrews helps us understand a little bit more about him. By faith, Enoch was taken up. So it was by his faith that he was taken up. So he should not, be, not see death. So he didn't die. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Wouldn't you like that to be your epitaph? I'd kill to have that in front of <laughs> Not really. I mean, there's some sense in which we see pictures of Jesus in this, foreshadowing in a sense of what was coming with Christ to come, right? But there's a big difference. Jesus really did die. His body really did die, Right? He really did yield up his spirit. But then there was a big thing that happened after that that made him, his, his the goings on with him very different, completely unique to anything else, and that is he was resurrected from the dead. But then he did ascend into heaven, right? And he's there. He's there right now as we speak in bodily form, interceding on your behalf among other things. Elijah took his mantle, wrapped it up, and struck the waters, and they parted from here to there, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Now, remember the mantle. This is probably the very same mantle that, that Elijah, the first time that he encountered Elisha when he was plowing. Remember that? What those scriptures tell us is he took his mantle and he draped it over or he threw it over Elisha. And in doing that, it was kind of symbolic of him passing, uh, uh, symbolic of what is going to happen now. The passing of his mantle to Elijah to be prophet in his place. It's interesting. I was going to try to demonstrate this. I probably should have. It would have been pretty cool. Uh, I mean, why is there an emphasis here on the fact that he folded it up or he rolled it up? 
this mantle. Well, what I would say to you is this, is, is if you take a garment and you leave it open and you thrust it down, you're going to have a completely different effect than you will if you fold it up and concentrate its weight and then throw it down. This is the only possible explanation I can come up with for some particular aspects of this. Was this some special mantle this cloak, basically, that, that a light, did they just have special magical powers or something like that? Kind of like Harry Potter's cloak of invisibility cloak, you know what I'm talking about, some of you? Now, we understand that. We understand there was nothing special about the mantle other than it was Elijah's mantle. And because it was Elijah's mantle, it was, it was special because he was special because he was God's man. The Hebrew word here that is very often translated as struck. And the King James Version Bible is most often translated as smite or smote. What that means is to strike some, something with very great force. Very often in the Bible, it's such force, another pers- a person strikes another human being strong enough to kill him with that. That's what smote means. So I want you to understand something. Elijah just didn't take the tail of his cloak and tap the water with it. He took his coat his cloak, his mantle, intentionally folded it up, took it, and he smote the water with it. In other words, he cast it down with every bit of force that he could use. Yeah, I was going to try to illustrate that for you this morning with a pan of water and some stuff, but maybe next time. You understand the difference? Let me ask you something. What happens when you strike the surface of standing water with something? It's a pebble or what? Yeah, you get waves moving out from it, right? In other words, the water begins to separate. And the greater the force there is, the greater the effect is. Right? My point here, guys, is this. Sometimes God uses human agents to accomplish particular things. Other times he does things completely apart from human agency. But what I want us to understand here is that that one thing that's going on here is God was taking what Elijah did and he multiplied it. He magnified it. I mean, what chances do you think or do I think that Elijah of himself would have the ability to do what he did and separate the, the Jordan River long enough for him and Elisha to walk across it on dry ground? You think about certain miracles that even Jesus did. Sometimes Jesus didn't start with nothing. He started with something. 
and he multiplied it. Like when he fed the 5,000, he fed the the 4,000, right? Jesus actually took bread and he actually took fish that were there and he multiplied those. There's a sense in which the same kind of thing is going on here with Elijah. God's taking the little that he can do as a person and he's multiplying it. I want you to understand something, too, that when it dried up, it dried up. It wasn't muddy, it wasn't gushy, it wasn't mushy, it was dry as the desert. They didn't dirty up the soles of their sandals one iota. Now, when we think about this, this is a couple of stories in the Bible that really should remind us of this, right? One is the parting of the Red Sea, and the other is another parting of the Jordan River, which took place, guys, kids, just immediately before Jericho came tumbling down. The Bible tells us that Moses took his staff, or God told him to take his staff and raise his hand over the sea, and the sea would part, and he did it. Instructions were given to Joshua as to the Ark of the Covenant when it was going to go across over the Jordan River. Is that as soon as the priest's feet touch the water, then the, then the waters of the Jordan will be stopped. Because you need to understand something. We're not talking about an ocean here that's got current. We're talking about a, a river here that goes from one place to the other. So you've got to have some mechanism for standing there to back the water up. And when you're talking about Joshua, it talks about how the water was backed up all the way to so-and-so. It'd be cool to see something like that. You know, I watched a movie not long ago, and I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. But I watched it just to see the special effects. Some of the special effects things they do today are just unbelievable. And what? And, and this was, uh, I can't remember the name of the movie now, but it had the parting of the Red Sea. And just, just the last couple of years, Christian Bale was in it. And, and let me tell you, theologically, it was an atrocity. It was... It was as heretical as you could possibly say. But the special effects. And we saw this in some of the Lord of the Rings, the, the, the Lord of the Rings movie, the, 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 the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you know, where you have this wave that just, just keeps rolling and stuff, but it never comes down. Can you imagine something like that? That's one of those things, if anybody sees it, what is their conclusion going to be? There's only one possible conclusion for something like that, of, 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 of you having this, this water body, and then without some kind of a physical contraption, somebody putting a dam up there or putting rocks in it or wood or something like that to stop it. If you saw something like this, it would only be one possible conclusion, and that is that's a God thing. Only God can do something like that. That's nothing, that's nothing that Elijah can do. That's nothing Elisha can do. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing you can do. Only God can do things like that. So God's making himself known here very clearly. Very clearly. Now, we talked about the fact that there were 50 sons of the prophets who were there watching from a distance. So Elisha's there as a witness. But there's also 50 others 
they're watching. Now, like we said before, the witnesses are very important when it comes to establishing facts, like in criminal cases and stuff like that, and historicity, that witnesses are very, very important. One of the reasons we believe some of the things we believe that the Bible says is because they're testified to by more than one witness, many witnesses in some cases, right? Remember when Jesus was resurrected? Then you have all these people going out, these apostles going out and preaching and teaching people about this resurrection. What was it that added validity to that concept? It was a fact they were eyewitnesses. They saw it. They saw Jesus, well, they saw Jesus after he was resurrected from the dead. And these 11 guys, not Judas, but the other 11, they actually saw with their own eyeballs Jesus ascend into heaven. Do you understand that the Bible is their testimony? It is the testimony of eyewitnesses. Do you understand that's why it's so important of understanding that the apostles had everything to do with the writing of the New Testament? Because this was their testimony about Jesus, the whole New Testament. Miracles. It sure would be nice to see a few. Let me just tell you, I read a story just recently, and this is true. This just recently happened. It was a, it was a woman that was pregnant with a child, and the doctors were telling the parents, there's no way. child's not going to make it. child won't live, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And guess what? The baby was born, and the baby was perfect. You and I may never see something like the parting of the Red Sea or the parting of the Jordan River. But we all have opportunities to see the greatest miracle of all. The transformation of the human heart. You think that parting... The Jordan River is a big deal. It's nothing, nothing compared to the power of God necessary to change your heart, to change your perspective, to transform you. What I'm telling you guys is this, is you might think you've never seen a miracle in your whole lifetime when you're, you are the very greatest example of a miracle you have ever seen or probably ever will see. And not only that, God has given us the opportunity to watch as he does the same thing with other people, to be a part of that. It's like he uses Elijah as human agency here, guys. He still uses us. Think about your conversion. Think about the people who shared Christ with you through your lifetime. 
There may be someone in this room that just picked up a Bible one day and read the gospel and they became a believer as a result. That happens on rare occasions. 99.999% of the time, it involves other people engaging. The church isn't growing today, guys. It's shrinking. What does that tell you? People are not evangelizing. People are not getting into the lives of other people and all that. There's too many people who believe that, you know, Jesus saved me, and all i got to do now is just sit here on my duff and wait for him to come, or I'll die and I'll go to him. That's just the end of the story. Let me tell you, people have that mentality, that attitude. They're cheating themselves out of one of the most beautiful, unbelievable miracles that you can ever be a part of. And there's something about that feeling of knowing God that he took so very little in you and in part used you to bring that person to that point. Just think about it. If the, if the church is shrinking, that means on the average, more, more people don't ever have anything to do with converting anybody else. So my message this morning is don't cheat yourself. That's a blessing like no other blessing. Elijah served God. We serve God. We serve Jesus. It means our time is not our own. It means our money is not our own. It means all the stuff that we think is ours is not ours. It's all his. And very often we think, well, I give 10%. I give 10% of my time. Or I give 10% of my money. And that's what God wants me to do. And as long as I do that, then I've got his full blessing. And he's just delighted with me because I'm willing to do that when so many people are not willing to do that. But Jesus bought us. Paid for us. We are his. And we must, guys at prayer reference, they hear me pray this every single week. We must be about our Father's business. We must be about our Father's business. And our business is spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ in what we say and in what we do. We may very well finish this up next week.